The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alice Monroe Week here on the History of Literature podcast. Today, we're going to start listening to one of Alice Monroe's greatest works, The Love of a Good Woman, that 1996 novella-length story. We're going to listen to this in three parts. In fact, we'll have three shows this week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's the plan. So you can get your fill of Alice Monroe. And what a beautiful story it is. Expansive and yet intimate, sweeping and yet so intricate it will take your breath away. It's Monroe at her best, withholding truths, withholding conclusions. She is a hard author to pin down sometimes. She's so generous and insightful with the smallest of observations. And at the same time, just when you think she's going to give you something, she pulls back. And you're left alone with a haunting image and the memory of your own expectations. How do we read an author like this? And in this case, we have an almost direct comparison. Stephen King, whose novella The Body was turned into the movie Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. There's a lot of parallels between Alice Monroe's story and Stephen King's story. I don't know if parallels is the right word. A lot of similarities. When I describe it, if you described it in a sentence... It would almost be the same thing. Can we just pause for a moment and celebrate? I mentioned the movie Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. Can we just pause for a moment and celebrate Rob Reiner, the director? 1984, This Is Spinal Tap comes out. A seismic movie sort of invented the form of mockumentary, or at least popularized it. One of the greatest movies about rock and roll of all time. One of the most quotable films ever. That was 1984 for Mr. Reiner. He directed that movie, Spinal Tap. 1985, he makes The Sure Thing, John Cusack. Good teenage romance slash coming-of-age story. Not quite John Hughes, but very good in that vein. 1986, next year, he makes Stand By Me. A haunting, spooky story about some boys who find a body. Another great coming-of-age story. This time it's got heaviness and resonance, although it still has the humor, the Rob Reiner, the light touches. He's on kind of a roll now, right? Wouldn't you say three in a row? Good movies? Spinal Tap, at least. Great one. 1987, he makes The Princess Bride. My God. If there's a list of movies that you would not remake... The Princess Bride is probably at the top. 33 years old, that movie is. Still perfection. Still funny, still fresh. Andre the Giant and Wallace Shawn and Mandy Patinkin. Christopher Guest, my God, Robin Wright, the most beautiful woman in the world. You know the movie. It's one that is impossible to dislike. Everyone who watches it ends up smiling. So funny and clever and beautiful and warm. Adults like it, kids like it, men, women, it doesn't matter. So Rob Reiner, now he's four for four. Don't worry, we're going to get to Alice Monroe. First, we're going to talk a little bit about Rob Reiner. (laughs) 
Four for four, he is. Four in four years, all four in a completely different genre, by the way. Have you noticed that? So Mr. Reiner takes a year off, 1988. No films come out that year. And then 1989, When Harry Met Sally. Maybe the best romantic comedy of all time. It revives the whole genre of romantic comedy. It brings back the smartness of the classic era of Hollywood romantic comedies. The Cary Grant movies, the Tracy Hepburn movies, all those, and it updates them for a post-60s era. That movie is so good. With Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, it basically reinvents the genre again. Now we've now we're in a whole different genre, a fifth genre for Mr. Reiner. All those Julia Roberts movies come right out of the When Harry Met Sally playbook, don't they? Okay, 1990. We're on a streak now, five for five. Great movies, or at least very, very good ones, and very different from one another. He makes Misery, a horror film, also a classic. And then his next movie, A Few Good Men. Bam. Courtroom drama, Cruise and Bacon, and classic Jack Nicholson. Seven movies in nine years. Seven amazing movies. At least three of them, Spinal Tap, Princess Bride, and Harry, When Harry Met Sally, are among the best movies ever made in their genre. Rob Reiner. He's like Ron Howard. He's so good, but he's so popular. Makes it, His movies are so popular, he makes it look easy. Does not get enough credit. He made other good movies after that, too. But that run of movies from 1984 to 1992, seven movies in a row, all of them classics, were very close. That's hard to beat. Scorsese doesn't have a run like that. Spielberg? Not that many good ones in a row with no duds. Hitchcock? Maybe. But not that many different styles. How about Kubrick? Not in nine years. <laughs> You're lucky to get one in nine years from me, that guy. Okay, where were we? Stephen King's story, The Body, which was the Rob Reiner movie, Stand By Me. The Body shows us what it's like to have a great writer following four boys as they head out into the countryside to look for and find, spoiler alert, find the body of a boy they've heard has disappeared. Along the way, they talk about life and the future and things that are on their minds, and we see how the story looks in the hands of a writer like Stephen King. The boys are growing up in a lot of dysfunction, and they encounter some older bullies, and they do find the body and come to grips with what it looks like to see death, the finality of it. And there's some violence, and eventually the boys grow up, and three of them die young, leaving the narrator, who becomes a writer, to deal with the demons of his past, including the finding of the body. That's a Stephen King story. Someone pulls a gun and fires it into the air. There's Vietnam vets, the counterculture of the 60s, boys beating up other boys, ferocity and violence. Stephen King. Let's reset our expectations before we get to Alice Monroe. Let's take a quick break, then we'll come back with our introduction to this great short story by the great Alice Monroe. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Alice Monroe Week. What a treat. A great novella in three parts, and all you have to do is listen. Listen and think, and let yourself fall into this story. And maybe read it yourself, if you'd like. It's not the easiest of stories, but it is rewarding. That's kind of how Alice Monroe is. Once when I was young and hungry, I was picked up by my Italian friends, and they took me out to a restaurant in the hills outside Bologna. Everyone was raving about this place, they said. I was eager to see what it was like. I was also pretty broke. In those days, a student, I had to watch my cash very carefully. I was living on a stipend. And so when they ordered up these little dishes, I declined, thinking that the appetizers, well, that's how the bill adds up, right? The appetizers, the bread, you pay for the bread in Italy as a cover charge. The beverages, I didn't know how much any of this cost. But my friends were so excited about the place. I guessed, I, I took from their excitement that it was probably expensive, definitely more expensive than the meals I ate at the Mensa, the student cafeteria, which was pretty incredible, actually. The student cafeteria, nothing like what we have in the States. That's Italy for you couple of bucks for pasta and salad and meat and fish and red wine on tap. And the Italians were complaining about the food at the Mensa, but for me it was completely delicious, a real feast, just for a few bucks. So there I was. I was used to the Mensa, getting my fill. And restaurants were a treat, but dangerous. I could blow a whole week's budget at one if I wasn't careful. Somebody ordered the wrong bottle of wine, and my share came. <laughs> oh, you know how it is, especially if you're a student. So the little dishes 
come and go, and I'm waiting for the big meal at this famous restaurant that I'm sitting at, trying to follow along everyone's conversation, doing my best, smiling a lot. (laughs) And my friends stand up and start putting their coats on. And suddenly, we're walking back to the car. Didn't you love those, Jack? They're asking me, wasn't that just the best? And I realized that those weren't appetizers. Those were what we had gone there to eat. And I had not had any. I was completely starving. I'd thrown in some money at the end, humiliated by my error, not really knowing what else to do. And now... I couldn't wait for them to drop me off so I could run to some greasy pizza place that was known for its large portions. I felt so American, so un-European, so young and hungry and worthless, like I was a machine. Not a person, a machine that you shoveled coal into, a machine that ran on trash. A big cow that was kept in a stall and fed garbage. The whole point was of my intake was just dumb calories. Stuffing myself with dumb calories. Cheap, starchy food, cheap wine, free water. That's what I wanted. No enjoyment other than the one of feeling glutted for a few hours. No palate, no sophistication. Of course... To be fair, (laughs) that pizza place in Bologna run by that guy from Naples was better than anything I'd probably eat here. But you get the point. Talking comparison here. I had no palate, no sophistication. I could have. I didn't. That's a little bit like what Alice Monroe is like. These first two pages... Of this story, a lot of people criticize them. Oh, why does it start so slow? These two pages, ugh. Long description. Something that kind of matters, doesn't really matter. First two pages say, hey you. This isn't the all-you-can-eat pizza place run by the Neapolitan. This is the little restaurant out in the country where the dishes are exquisite. You don't come here to stuff yourself with empty calories. You come here to this Alice Monroe story to experience something else. Put yourself in that frame of mind. And as C.S. Lewis told us last time, there's room in the grown-up world for both kinds of story. You can enjoy the big greasy pizza sometimes, because sometimes there's nothing better than a big, endless pizza or a Stephen King book. And you can enjoy the delicious and refined food, too, the special bottle of wine that has treasures to unlock, or the evening spent luxuriating over a single bite. Alice Monroe has a very different sensibility from Stephen King. Reset your expectations about a story about a boy or a group of boys going out to find a body. Alice Monroe is almost going to reset them ourselves. Maybe that's the point of the first two pages. I've seen that suggested. First two pages of her novella are about an object in a local museum, an ophthalmoscope, notable for its surprising weight. What is that doing, starting out our novella about a murder? 
She's resetting us as readers. I've heard these two pages described as kind of a a threshold for the reader. A lot of people might come into this thinking they're going to get a Stephen King-like look at this body, at this subject, a potential murder victim found by a group of boys. What will we see? There's a kind of furious race you'll see in writers sometimes. Writers who are mad and sweaty and trying to make sure they knock you out with their first sentence. Have you seen that? (laughs) The frenzy. Trying to grab you by the lapels, shake you into a state of shock. Hey, who can blame them? There are a lot of stories out there. It's hard to get noticed among that ocean of fiction. But you'll see these stories. They'll have lines like, The first time I slept with a man for money, dot, dot, dot. Or, There's nothing quite as pungent as a corpse being roasted in a kerosene fire, dot, dot, dot. Something like that. Bam, I was on the run. The gun is at my head. (laughs) I pressed the accelerator. Time to move. Monroe's first sentence. Keep in mind that this is a story about a murder or a potential murder. And here's the first sentence of the story. Quote, For the last couple of decades, there has been a museum in Wally dedicated to preserving photos and butter churns and horse harnesses and an old dentist's chair and a cumbersome apple peeler and such curiosities as the pretty little porcelain and glass insulators that were used on telegraph poles. End quote. Now, you can get lost in a sentence like that. You can get lost. You can get lost in the rhythm and the music of it. You can get lost in the details, farm equipment and other bric-a-brac. You can also get frustrated by the pace. It's almost deliberately telling you, this is Wally. Wally, the small town. Wally has a museum. It isn't a museum filled with Picassos or the Elgin Marbles. It's a museum of a small town. Small towns have very little happening in them. The objects I'm going to describe are quaint. I'm imagining the author's voice here. The objects I'm going to describe for you are quaint. There's photos, there's an old dentist chair, a cumbersome apple peeler, that sort of thing. And you'll almost feel sorry for Wally and its residents because... Their lives are so uneventful that they have to elevate items like this to the status of museum objects. Look at this. It's an apple peeler. Remember how cumbersome these old apple peelers used to be? And we think, who would collect this stuff? Who would go? Anyone from out of town, and perhaps we as readers would see this stuff as almost embarrassing for the town. We live in cities, or at least go to them. We know what museums really are or should be, places with the greatest cultural and historical treasures on the planet, collected in one place, soaring ceilings, light pouring in from the high windows, hushed rooms, a dramatic display, places to inspire. And Monroe says in this first sentence, maybe, but that's not this place. Wally is a flyover place, an ignored place, a dot on the map. If it's on the map. And yet, the impulse 
to preserve and honor is there in Wally. The impulse to connect ourselves to our past. People still get old in Wally. They still make decisions. They live. They love. They fight. They try to comprehend. They value. They're still there. That's still happening. And a museum someone put together out of some impulse of nostalgia or love or curiosity or desire for community, that's still valid. It exists. And so we see where Monroe has brought us all in one sentence. She's set the stage for us. You might fly over this place, this town, but listen, pal, that's not what we'll be doing here. We're going to spend some time We'll take it seriously because there are people here, and wherever people are, we have the possibility of learning something from the way they go about their business. There can be a universal, a universality rising out of these particulars. Monroe herself grew up in the 1930s and 40s in a town like Wally, Wingham, Ontario, a couple hours from Toronto even a little further from Detroit, a little less than an hour to Lake Huron, the vast body of water with nothing there either, other than scenic beauty. This is the southwest part of Huron County, on the west side of Ontario. The population is thin. It's an area for farmland and timber, trees and open spaces, flat roads, people in small towns, towns with a store or two, and families that get to know each other well, their lives all intertwined. And maybe you marry a girl you knew in high school, or maybe you marry someone from a town or two over. It's a world I find kind of familiar, actually. Although my Wisconsin town had even less population than Wingham, Ontario. (laughs) Wingham. Always makes me smile when someone is portraying a tiny town and yet it's triple the size of my town. Small it is small small as Wingham is. It's triple the size, but it's in the same ballpark. We didn't have a museum, but we had wayward businesses and people struggling to get by and people making weird decisions about what they were going to do, how they were going to make it, what would keep them happy and the humanity of people, both the good and the bad, made the place burst at the seams. In some ways, it's a sleepy town in some ways, and yet it's bursting at the seams. In other ways, you'd get saints in town, and you'd get sinners. You'd get quiet, contemplative, hardworking folks, and you'd get bursts of violence, violence that came roaring out of nowhere, as frustrations and futility escalated from a simmer to a rolling boil. This is the world we're facing in this novella. There's a town, and the boys, and the finding of the body, and there's really not much more to this in part one. Don't worry if you feel like you're missing something. Don't worry if you feel like you should be tracking the body and who it might be and what it means. The story doesn't work like that. It's not dropping clues in part one for you to figure out a murder mystery or anything like that. This isn't Agatha Christie. And it's not even going to ask you to remember these boys 
They disappear after the first third. And in our next two installments, which come out Wednesday and Friday, you'll barely need to remember anything at all about them. Not the boys. What you need to do today is to put yourself in the mindset of this town, the world of this town, the sensibility that people have in this town. This town where people can turn the smallest of goals into seeming impossibilities. They defeat themselves here much of the time. They get distracted by problems. The quiet ones let the others do the talking, and so the best plans are sometimes thwarted by the blowhards. And people are not always honest with themselves. In that private dialogue we all have with ourselves, they sit and reflect rather than speaking. That's how I'm imagining it. My grandmother, not the Swiss one, but the other one, who lived in a town much like this, even smaller, even smaller than my town. She used to sit and listen to the storytelling, and once in a while she would contribute a remark. Once in a while, she didn't need to tell stories. She didn't need to say anything. She would sit on the sofa, listening, and now and then add something perfect to shape the story or to undermine the speaker, my grandfather, or to deliver the sharp stab of truth. But she could also just sit. And I picture these people in this town of Wally, some of them dealing with crises, overwhelmed by the fury of a crisis, and some of them just sitting and watching and observing and maybe not saying anything at all. And some of them, even internally, that voice we all have, the one that says, I want, I want, I want, or I need, I need, I need, I need, or listen, bub, this is, listen, this is how it's going to be from now on. Those voices, the side of us that yells at us to shape up, to ship out, to get real, to get ready, to get up and get out, that inner voice in Wally, in the people in Wally, is just sitting there, like my grandmother, calmly observing, not speaking, just quiet on the couch, hands on knees, or maybe holding some knitting needles, gazing calmly at the scene, living a whole life and maybe never opening one's lips, never saying a word, just sitting there, letting the person drift from Situation to situation, absorbing, never cracking that silence. In the next two segments, we'll talk about Alice Monroe, who did crack that silence in her personal life and her artistic life. But for now, for today, let's enjoy our time in Wally as Alice Monroe builds this world for us. Let's enjoy the details of the town and its residents, seeing the humanity in the humans, feeling both the expansiveness of the human spirit and the limitations that the world imposes on it again and again and again. It's the story of Wally. It's the story of life. Alice Monroe's The Love of a Good Woman, Part 1, After This.
The Love of a Good Woman by Alice Munro. For the last couple of decades, there has been a museum in Wally dedicated to preserving photos and butter churns and horse harnesses and an old dentist's chair and a cumbersome apple peeler and such curiosities as the pretty little porcelain and glass insulators that were used on telegraph poles. Also, there is a red box which has the letters D.M. Willens, optometrist, printed on it, and a note beside it saying, This box of optometrist instruments, though not very old, has considerable local significance, since it belonged to Mr. D.M. Willens, who drowned in the Peregrine River, 1951. It escaped the catastrophe and was found, presumably by the anonymous donor, who dispatched it to be a feature of our collection. The ophthalmoscope could make you think of a snowman, the top part, that is, the part that's fastened onto the hollow handle, a large disc with a smaller disc on top. In the large disc, a hole to look through as the various lenses are moved. The handle is heavy because the batteries are still inside. If you took the batteries out and put in the rod that is provided with a disc on either end, you could plug in an electric cord but it might have been necessary to use the instrument in places where there wasn't any electricity. The retinoscope looks more complicated. Underneath the round forehead clamp is something like an elf's head with a round flat face and a pointed metal cap. This is tilted at a 45-degree angle to a slim column, and out of the top of the column, a tiny light is supposed to shine. The flat face is made of glass and is a dark sort of mirror. Everything is black but that is only paint. In some places where the optometrist's hand must have rubbed most often, the paint has disappeared, and you can see a patch of shiny silver metal. 1. Jutland This place was called Jutland. There had been a mill once, and some kind of small settlement, but that had all gone by the end of the last century, and the place had never amounted to much at any time. Many people believe that it had been named in honor of the famous sea battle fought during the First World War, but actually, everything had been in ruins years before that battle ever took place. The three boys who came out here on a Saturday morning early in the spring of 1951 believed, as most children did, that the name came from the old wooden planks that jutted out of the earth of the riverbank and from the other straight thick boards that stood up in the nearby water making an uneven palisade. These were, in fact, the remains of a dam built before the days of cement. The planks and a heap of foundation stones and a lilac bush and some huge apple trees, deformed by black knot and the shallow ditch of the mill race that filled up with nettles every summer, were the only other signs of what had been here before. There was a road or a track coming back from the township road, but it had never been graveled, and appeared on the maps only as a dotted line, a road allowance. It was used quite a bit in the summer by people driving to the river to swim, or at night by couples looking for a place to park. The turnaround spot came before you got to the ditch, but the whole area was so overrun by nettles and cow parsnip and woody wild hemlock in a wet year that cars would sometimes have to back out all the way to the proper road. The car tracks to the water's edge on that spring morning were easy to spot, but were not taken notice of by these boys, who were thinking only about swimming. At least, they would call it swimming. They would go back to town and say that they had been swimming at Jutland before the snow was off the ground. It was colder here upstream than on the river flats close to the town. There was not a leaf out yet on the riverbank trees, 
The only green you saw was from patches of leeks on the ground and marsh marigolds, fresh as spinach, spread along any little stream that gullied its way down to the river. And on the opposite bank, under some cedars, they saw what they were especially looking for, a long, low, stubborn snowbank, gray as stones, not off the ground. So they would jump into the water and feel the cold hit them like ice daggers, ice daggers shooting up behind their eyes and jabbing the tops of their skulls from the inside. Then they would move their arms and legs a few times and haul themselves out, quaking and letting their teeth rattle. They would push their numb limbs into their clothes and feel the painful recapture of their bodies by their startled blood and the relief of making their brag true. The tracks that they didn't notice came right through the ditch, in which there was nothing growing now. There was only the flat, dead, straw-colored grass of the year before. Through the ditch and into the river without trying to turn around. The boys tramped over them. But by this time they were close enough to the water to have had their attention caught by something more extraordinary than car tracks. It was a pale blue shine to the water that was not a reflection of sky. It was a whole car, down in the pond on a slant, the front wheels and the nose of it poking into the mud on the bottom, and the bump of the trunk nearly breaking the surface. Light blue was in those days an unusual color for a car, and its bulgy shape was unusual too. They knew it right away. The little English car, the Austin, the only one of its kind, surely, in the whole county. It belonged to Mr. Willens, the optometrist. He looked like a cartoon character when he drove it because he was a short but thick man with heavy shoulders and a large head. He always seemed to be crammed into his little car as if it was a bursting suit of clothes. The car had a panel in its roof, which Mr. Willens opened in warm weather. It was open now. They could not see very well what was inside. The color of the car made its shape plain in the water, but the water was really not very clear, and it obscured what was not so bright. The boys squatted down on the bank, then lay on their stomachs and pushed their heads out like turtles, trying to see. There was something dark and furry, something like a big animal tail, pushed up through the hole in the roof and moving idly in the water. This was shortly seen to be an arm, covered by the sleeve of a dark jacket of some heavy and hairy material. It seemed that inside the car a man's body, it had to be the body of Mr. Willens, had got into a peculiar position. The force of the water, for even in the mill pond there was a good deal of force in the water at this time of year, must have somehow lifted him from the seat and pushed him about, so that one shoulder was up near the car roof and one arm had got free. His head must have been shoved down against the driver's door and window. One front wheel was stuck deeper in the river bottom than the other, which meant that the car was on a slant from side to side as well as back to front. The window, in fact, must have been open and the head sticking out for the body to be lodged in that position. But they could not get to see that. They could picture Mr. Willens's face as they knew it, a big square face which often wore a theatrical sort of frown but was never seriously intimidating. His thin, crinkly hair was reddish or brassy on top and combed diagonally over his forehead. His eyebrows were darker than his hair, thick and fuzzy, like caterpillars stuck above his eyes. This was a face already grotesque to them in the way that many adult faces were, and they were not afraid to see it drowned. But all they got to see was that arm and his pale hand. They could see the hand quite plain once they got used to looking through the water. It rode there tremulously and irresolutely, like a feather, 
though it looked as solid as dough, and as ordinary, once you got used to its being there at all. The fingernails were all like neat little faces, with their intelligent, everyday look of greeting, their sensible disowning of their circumstances. Son of a gun, these boys said, with gathering energy and a tone of deepening respect, even of gratitude. Son of a gun. It was their first time out this year. They had come across the bridge over the Peregrine River, the single-lane, double-span bridge known locally as Hell's Gate or the Death Trap though the danger had really more to do with the sharp turn the road took at the south end of it than with the bridge itself. There was a regular walkway for pedestrians, but they didn't use it. They never remembered using it, perhaps years ago when they were so young as to be held by the hand. But that time had vanished for them. They refused to recognize it even if they were shown the evidence in snapshots or forced to listen to it in family conversation. They walked now along the iron shelf that ran on the opposite side of the bridge from the walkway. It was about eight inches wide and a foot or so above the bridge floor. The Peregrine River was rushing the winter load of ice and snow, now melted, out into Lake Huron. It was barely back within its banks after the yearly flood that turned the flats into a lake and tore out the young trees and bashed any boat or hut within its reach. With the runoff from the fields muddying the water and the pale sunlight on its surface, the water looked like butterscotch pudding on the boil. But if you fell into it, it would freeze your blood and fling you out into the lake if it didn't brain you against the buttresses first. Cars honked at them, a warning or a reproof, but they paid no attention. They proceeded single file as self-possessed as sleepwalkers. Then, at the north end of the bridge, they cut down to the flats, locating the paths they remembered from the year before. The flood had been so recent that these paths were not easy to follow. You had to kick your way through beaten-down brush and jump from one hummock of mud-plastered grass to another. Sometimes they jumped carelessly and landed in mud or pools of leftover flood water, and once their feet were wet, they gave up caring where they landed. They squelched through the mud and splashed in the pools so that the water came in over the tops of their rubber boots. The wind was warm. It was pulling the clouds apart into threads of old wool, and the gulls and crows were quarreling and diving over the river. Buzzards were circling over them on the high lookout. The robins had just returned, and the red-winged blackbirds were darting in pairs, striking bright on your eyes as if they had been dipped in paint. Should have brought a twenty-two. Should have brought a twelve-gauge. They were too old to raise sticks and make shooting noises. They spoke with casual regret, as if guns were readily available to them. They climbed up the north banks to a place where there was bare sand. Turtles were supposed to lay their eggs in this sand. It was too early yet for that to happen, and in fact the story of turtle eggs dated from years back. None of these boys had ever seen any. But they kicked and stomped the sand, just in case. Then they looked around for the place where last year one of them, in company with another boy, had found a cow's hip bone carried off by the flood from some slaughter pile. The river could be counted on every year to sweep off and deposit elsewhere a good number of surprising or cumbersome or bizarre or homely objects. Rolls of wire, an intact set of steps, a bent shovel, a corn kettle. The hip bone had been found caught on the branch of a sumac, which seemed proper, because all those smooth branches were like cow horns or deer antlers, 
some with rusty cone tips. They crashed around for some time. C.C. Ferns showed them the exact branch, but they found nothing. It was C.C. Ferns and Ralph Diller who had made that find, and when asked where it was at present, C.C. Ferns said, Ralph took it. The two boys who were with him now, Jimmy Box and Bud Salter, knew why that would have to be. C.C. could never take anything home unless it was of a size to be easily concealed from his father. They talked of more useful finds that might be made or had been made in past years. Fence rails could be used to build a raft. Pieces of stray lumber could be collected for a planned shack or boat. Real luck would be to get hold of some loose muskrat traps. Then you could go into business. You could pick up enough lumber for stretching boards and steal the knives for skinning. They spoke of taking over an empty shed they knew of in the blind alley behind what used to be the livery barn. There was a padlock on it, but you could probably get in through the window, taking the boards off it at night and replacing them at daybreak. You could take a flashlight to work by. No, a lantern. You could skin the muskrats and stretch the pelts and sell them for a lot of money. This project became so real to them that they started to worry about leaving valuable pelts in the shed all day. One of them would have to stand watch while the others went out on the trap lines. Nobody mentioned school. This was the way they talked when they got clear of town. They talked as if they were free, or almost free, agents, as if they didn't go to school or live with families or suffer any of the indignities put on them because of their age. Also, as if the countryside and other people's establishments would provide them with all they needed for their undertakings and adventures, with only the smallest risk and effort on their part. Another change in their conversation out here was that they practically gave up using names. They didn't use each other's real names much anyway, not even family nicknames such as Bud. But at school, nearly everyone had another name, some of these having to do with the way people looked or talked, like Goggle or Jabber and some, like sore arse and chicken fucker, having to do with incidents real or fabulous in the lives of those named, or in the lives, such names were handed down for decades, of their brothers, fathers, or uncles. These were the names they let go of when they were out in the bush or on the river flats. If they had to get one another's attention, all they said was, hey. Even the use of names that were outrageous and obscene, and that grown-ups supposedly never heard, would have spoiled the sense they had at these times of taking each other's looks, habits, family, and personal history entirely for granted. And yet, they hardly thought of each other as friends. They would never have designated someone as a best friend or a next best friend, or joggled people around in these positions, the way girls did. Any one of at least a dozen boys could have been substituted for any one of these three, and accepted by the others in exactly the same way. Most members of that company were between nine and twelve years old, too old to be bound by yards and neighborhoods, but too young to have jobs, even jobs sweeping the sidewalk in front of stores or delivering groceries by bicycle. Most of them lived in the north end of town, which meant that they would be expected to get a job of that sort as soon as they were old enough and that none of them would ever be sent away to Appleby or to Upper Canada College, and none of them lived in a shack or had a relative in jail. Just the same, there were notable differences as to how they lived at home and what was expected of them in life. But these differences dropped away as soon as they were out of sight of the county jail and the grain elevator and the church steeples and out of range of the chimes of the courthouse clock. 
On their way back, they walked fast. Sometimes they trotted, but did not run. Jumping, dallying, splashing were all abandoned, and the noises they'd made on their way out, the hoots and howls, were put aside as well. Any windfall of the flood was taken note of, but passed by. In fact, they made their way as adults would do, at a fairly steady speed and by the most reasonable route, with the weight on them of where they had to go and what had to be done next. They had something close in front of them, a picture in front of their eyes that came between them and the world, which was the thing most adults seemed to have. The pond, the car, the arm, the hand. They had some idea that when they got to a certain spot, they would start to shout. They would come into town yelling and waving their news around them, and everybody would be stock still, taking it in. They crossed the bridge the same way as always, on the shelf but they had no sense of risk or courage or nonchalance. They might as well have taken the walkway. Instead of following the sharp-turning road from which you could reach both the harbor and the square, they climbed straight up the bank on a path that came out near the railway sheds. The clock played its quarter-after chimes, a quarter-after twelve. This was the time when people were walking home for dinner. People from offices had the afternoon off, but people who worked in stores were getting only their customary hour. The stores stayed open till 10 or 11 o'clock on Saturday night. Most people were going home to a hot, filling meal, pork chops or sausages or boiled beef or cottage roll, potatoes for certain, mashed or fried, winter-stored root vegetables or cabbage or creamed onions. A few housewives, richer or more feckless, might have opened a tin of peas or butter beans. Bread, muffins, preserves, pie. Even those people who didn't have a home to go to, or who for some reason didn't want to go there, would be sitting down to much the same sort of food at the Duke of Cumberland, or the Merchant's Hotel, or for less money behind the foggy windows of Sherville's Dairy Bar. Those walking home were mostly men. The women were already there. They were there all the time. But some women of middle age who worked in stores or offices for a reason that was not their fault, dead husbands or sick husbands or never any husband at all, were friends of the boys' mothers, and they called out greetings even across the street. It was worst for Bud Salter, whom they called Buddy, in a certain amused or sprightly way that brought to mind all they knew of family matters or distant infancies. Men didn't bother greeting boys by name, even if they knew them well. They called them boys, or young fellows, or occasionally, sirs. Good day to you, sirs. You boys going straight home now? What monkey business you young fellows been up to this morning? All these greetings had a degree of jocularity, but there were differences. The men who said young fellows were better disposed, or wished to seem better disposed, than the ones who said boys. Boys could be the signal that a telling-off was to follow for offenses that could be either vague or specific. Young fellows indicated that the speaker had once been young himself. Sirs was outright mockery and disparagement, but didn't open the way to any scolding, because the person who said that could not be bothered. When answering, the boys didn't look up past any lady's purse or any man's Adam's apple. They said, hello, clearly, because there might be some kind of trouble if you didn't. And in answer to queries, they said, yes, sir, and no, sir, and nothing much. 
Even on this day, such voices speaking to them caused some alarm and confusion, and they replied with the usual reticence. At a certain corner they had to separate. Cece Ferns, always the most anxious about getting home, pulled away first. He said, See you after dinner. Bud Salter said, Yeah, we got to go downtown then. This meant, as they all understood, downtown to the police office. It seemed that without needing to consult each other, they had taken up a new plan of operation, a soberer way of telling their news. But it wasn't clearly said that they wouldn't be telling anything at home. There wasn't any good reason why Bud Salter or Jimmy Box couldn't have done that. Cece Ferns never told anything at home. Cece Ferns was an only child. His parents were older than most boys' parents, or perhaps they only seemed older, because of the disabling life they lived together. When he got away from the other boys, Cece started to trot, as he usually did for the last block home. This was not because he was eager to get there, or because he thought he could make anything better when he did. It may have been to make the time pass quickly, because the last block had to be full of apprehension. His mother was in the kitchen. Good. She was out of bed, though still in her wrapper. His father wasn't there, and that was good, too. His father worked at the grain elevator and got Saturday afternoon off, and if he wasn't home by now, it was likely that he had gone straight to the Cumberland. That meant it would be late in the day before they had to deal with him. Cece's father's name was Cece Ferns, too. It was a well-known and generally an affectionately known name in Wally, and somebody telling a story, even 30 or 40 years later, would take it for granted that everybody would know it was the father who was being talked about, not the son. If a person relatively new in town said, that doesn't sound like Cece, he would be told that nobody meant that Cece. Not him. We're talking about his old man. They talked about the time Cece Ferns went to the hospital, or was taken there, with pneumonia, or some other desperate thing, and the nurses wrapped him in wet towels or sheets to get the fever down. The fever sweated out of him, and all the towels and sheets turned brown. It was the nicotine in him. The nurses had never seen anything like it. Cece was delighted. He claimed to have been smoking tobacco and drinking alcohol since he was ten years old. And the time he went to church. It was hard to imagine why, but it was the Baptist church, and his wife was a Baptist, so perhaps he went to please her, though that was even harder to imagine. They were serving communion the Sunday he went, and in the Baptist church, the bread is bread, but the wine is grape juice. What's this? cried Cece Ferns aloud. If this is the blood of the lamb, then he must have been pretty damn anemic. Preparations for the noon meal were underway in the Ferns's kitchen. A loaf of sliced bread was sitting on the table, and a can of diced beets had been opened. A few slices of bologna had been fried before the eggs, though they should have been done after, and were being kept slightly warm on top of the stove. And now Cece's mother had started the eggs. She was bending over the stove with the egg lifter in one hand, and the other hand pressed to her stomach, cradling a pain. Cece took the egg lifter out of her hand and turned down the electric heat, which was way too high. He had to hold the pan off the burner while the burner cooled down in order to keep the egg whites from getting too tough or burning at the edges. He hadn't been in time to wipe out the old grease and plop a bit of fresh lard in the pan. His mother never wiped out the old grease, just let it sit from one meal to the next and put in a bit of lard when she had to. When the heat was more to his liking, he put the pan down and coaxed the lacy edges of the eggs into tidy circles. 
he found a clean spoon and dribbled a little hot fat over the yolks to set them. He and his mother liked their eggs cooked this way, but his mother often couldn't manage it right. His father liked his eggs turned over and flattened out like pancakes, cooked hard as shoe leather and blackened with pepper. Cece could cook them the way he wanted, too. None of the other boys knew how practiced he was in the kitchen, just as none of them knew about the hiding place he had made outside the house in the blind corner past the dining room window, behind the Japanese barbary. His mother sat in the chair by the window while he was finishing up the eggs. She kept an eye on the street. There was still a chance that his father would come home for something to eat. He might not be drunk yet. But the way he behaved didn't always depend on how drunk he was. If he came into the kitchen now, he might tell Cece to make him some eggs too. Then he might ask him where his apron was and say that he would, have, he would make some fellow a dandy wife. That would be how he'd behave if he was in a good mood. In another sort of mood, he would start off by staring at Cece in a certain way, that is, with an exaggerated, absurdly threatening expression, and telling him he better watch out. Smart bugger, aren't you? Well, all I got to say to you is better watch out. Then, if Cece looked back at him, or maybe if he didn't look back, or if he dropped the egg lifter or set it down with a clatter, or even if he was sliding around being extra cautious about not dropping anything and not making a noise, his father was apt to start showing his teeth and snarling like a dog. It would have been ridiculous. It was ridiculous, except that he meant business. A minute later, the food and the dishes might be on the floor, and the chairs or the table overturned, and he might be chasing Cece around the room, yelling how he was going to get him this time. Flatten his face on the hot burner. How would he like that? You would be certain he'd gone crazy. But if at this moment a knock came at the door, if a friend of his arrived, say, to pick him up, his face would reassemble itself in no time, and he would open the door and call out the friend's name in a loud, bantering voice. I'll be with you in two shakes. I'd ask you in, but the wife's been pitching the dishes around again. He didn't intend this to be believed. He said such things in order to turn whatever happened in his house into a joke. Cece's mother asked him if the weather was warming up and where he had been that morning. Yeah, he said, and out on the flats. She said that she thought she could smell the wind on him. You know what I'm going to do right after we eat? She said, I'm going to take a hot water bottle and go right back to bed, and maybe I'll get my strength back and feel like doing something. That was what she nearly always said she was going to do, but she always announced it as if it was an idea that had just occurred to her, a hopeful decision. Bud Salter had two older sisters who never did anything useful unless his mother made them and they never confined their hair-arranging, nail-polishing, shoe-cleaning, making-up, or even dressing activities to their bedrooms or the bathroom. They spread their combs and curlers and face powder and nail polish and shoe polish all over the house. Also, they loaded every chair back with their newly ironed dresses and blouses and spread out their drying sweaters on towels on every clear space of floor. Then they screamed at you if you walked near them. They stationed themselves in front of various mirrors, the mirror in the hall coat stand, the mirror in the dining room buffet, and the mirror beside the kitchen door with the shelf underneath, always loaded with safety pins, bobby pins, pennies, buttons, bits of pencil. Sometimes one of them would stand in front of a mirror for 20 minutes or so, checking herself from various angles, inspecting her teeth, and pulling her hair back, then shaking it forward. 
Then she would walk away, apparently satisfied, or at least finished, but only as far as the next room, the next mirror, where she would begin all over again, just as if she had been delivered a new head. Right now, his older sister, the one who was supposed to be good-looking, was taking the pins out of her hair in front of the kitchen mirror. Her head was covered with shiny curls like snails. His other sister, on orders from his mother, was mashing the potatoes. His five-year-old brother was sitting in place at the table, banging his knife and fork up and down and yelling, Want some service? Want some service? He got that from their father, who did it for a joke. Bud passed by his brother's chair and said quietly, Look, she's putting lumps in the mashed potatoes again. He had his brother convinced that lumps were something you added, like raisins to rice pudding, from a supply in the cupboard. His brother stopped chanting and began complaining. I won't eat none if she puts in lumps. Mama, I won't eat none if she puts in lumps. Oh, don't be silly, Bud's mother said. She was frying apple slices and onion rings with the pork chops. Quit whining like a baby. It was Bud got him started, the older sister said. Bud went and told him she was putting lumps in. Bud always tells him that, and he doesn't know any better. Bud ought to get his face smashed said Doris, the sister who was mashing the potatoes. She didn't always say such things idly. She had once left a claw scar down the side of Bud's cheek. Bud went over to the dresser, where there was a rhubarb pie cooling. He took a fork and began carefully, secretly prying at it, letting out delicious steam, a delicate smell of cinnamon. He was trying to open one of the vents in the top of it so that he could get a taste of the filling. His brother saw what he was doing, but was too scared to say anything. His brother was spoiled and was defended by his sisters all the time. Bud was the only person in the house he respected. Want some service, he repeated, speaking now in a thoughtful undertone. Doris came over to the dresser to get the bowl for the mashed potatoes. Bud made an incautious movement and part of the top crust caved in. So now he's wrecking the pie, Doris said. Mama, he's wrecking your pie. Shut your damn mouth, Bud said. Leave that pie alone, said Bud's mother with a practiced, almost serene severity. Stop swearing. Stop tattletelling. Grow up. Jimmy Box sat down to dinner at a crowded table. He and his father and his mother and his four-year-old and six-year-old sisters lived in his grandmother's house with his grandmother and his great-aunt Mary and his bachelor uncle. His father had a bicycle repair shop in the shed behind the house, and his mother worked in Honecker's department store. Jimmy's father was crippled, the result of a polio attack when he was 22 years old. He walked bent forward from the hips, using a cane. This didn't show so much when he was working in the shop, because such work often means being bent over anyway. When he walked along the street, he did look very strange, but nobody called him names or did an imitation of him. He had once been a notable hockey player and baseball player for the town, and some of the grace and valor of the past still hung around him, putting his present state into perspective so that it could be seen as a phase, though a final one. He helped this perception along by cracking silly jokes and taking an optimistic tone, denying the pain that showed in his sunken eyes and kept him awake many nights. And unlike Cece Ferns' father, he didn't change his tune when he came into his own house. But of course, it wasn't his own house. His wife had married him after he was crippled, though she had got engaged to him before, and it seemed the natural thing to do to move in with her mother so that the mother could look after any children who came along while the wife went on working at her job. 
It seemed the natural thing to the wife's mother as well to take on another family, just as it seemed natural that her sister Mary should move in with the rest of them when her eyesight failed, and that her son Fred, who was extraordinarily shy, should continue to live at home unless he found some place he liked better. This was a family who accepted burdens of one kind or another with even less fuss than they accepted the weather. In fact, nobody in that house would have spoken of Jimmy's father's condition or Aunt Mary's eyesight as burdens or problems any more than they would of Fred's shyness. Drawbacks and adversity were not to be noticed, not to be distinguished from their opposites. There was a traditional belief in the family that Jimmy's grandmother was an excellent cook, and this might have been true at one time, but in recent years there had been a falling off. Economies were practiced beyond what there was any need for now. Jimmy's mother and his uncle made decent wages, and his Aunt Mary got a pension, and the bicycle shop was fairly busy, but one egg was used instead of three, and the meatloaf got an extra cup of oatmeal. There was an attempt to compensate by overdoing the Worcestershire sauce or sprinkling too much nutmeg on the custard, but nobody complained. Everybody praised. Complaints were as rare as lightning balls in that house, and everybody said, excuse me, Even the little girls said, excuse me, when they bumped into each other. Everybody passed and pleased and thank you'd at the table as if there was company every day. This was the way they managed, all of them crammed so tight in the house, with clothes piled on every hook, coats hung over the banister, and cots set up permanently in the dining room for Jimmy and his Uncle Fred, and the buffet hidden under a load of clothing waiting to be ironed or mended. Nobody pounded on the stair steps or shut doors hard or turned the radio up loud or said anything disagreeable. Did this explain why Jimmy kept his mouth shut that Saturday at dinner time? They all kept their mouths shut, all three of them. In Cece's case, it was easy to understand. His father would never have stood for Cece's claiming so important a discovery. He would have called him a liar as a matter of course. And Cece's mother, judging everything by the effect it would have on his father, would have understood correctly, that even his going to the police office with his story would cause disruption at home, so she would have told him to please just keep quiet. But the two other boys lived in quite reasonable homes, and they could have spoken. In Jimmy's house there would have been consternation and some disapproval, but soon enough they would have admitted that it was not Jimmy's fault. Bud's sisters would have asked if he was crazy. They might even have twisted things around to imply that it was just like him, with his unpleasant habits, to come upon a dead body. His father, however, was a sensible, patient man, used to listening to many strange rigmaroles in his job as a freight agent at the railway station. He would have made Bud's sisters shut up, and after some serious talk, to make sure Bud was telling the truth and not exaggerating, he would have phoned the police office. It was just that their houses seemed too full. Too much was going on already. This was true in Cece's house just as much as in the others, because even in his father's absence, there was the threat and memory all the time of his haywire presence. Did you tell? Did you? Me neither. They walked downtown, not thinking about the way they were going. They turned onto Shipka Street and found themselves going past the stucco bungalow where Mr. and Mrs. Willens lived. They were right in front of it before they recognized it. It had a small bay window on either side of the front door and a top step wide enough for two chairs, not there at present, but occupied on summer evenings by Mr. Willens and his wife. There was a flat-roofed addition to one side of the house with another door opening toward the street and a separate walk leading up to it. 
The sign beside that door said, D.M. Willens, optometrist. None of the boys themselves had visited that office, but Jimmy's Aunt Mary went there regularly for her eye drops, and his grandmother got her glasses there. So did Bud Salter's mother. The stucco was a muddy pink color, and the doors and window frames were painted brown. The storm windows had not been taken off yet, as they hadn't from most of the houses in town. There was nothing special at all about the house, but the front yard was famous for its flowers. Mrs. Willens was a renowned gardener who didn't grow her flowers in long rows beside the vegetable garden, as Jimmy's grandmother and Bud's mother grew theirs. She had them in round beds and crescent beds and all over, and in circles under the trees. In a couple of weeks, daffodils would fill this lawn. But at present, the only thing in bloom was a forsythia bush at the corner of the house. It was nearly as high as the eaves, and it sprayed yellow into the air, the way a fountain shoots water. The forsythia shook, not with the wind, and out came a stooped brown figure. It was Mrs. Willens in her old gardening clothes, a lumpy little woman in baggy slacks and a ripped jacket, and a peaked cap that might have been her husband's. It slipped down too low and almost hid her eyes. She was carrying a pair of shears. They slowed right down. It was either that or run. Maybe they thought that she wouldn't notice them, or that they could turn themselves into posts. But she had seen them already. That was why she came hastening through. I see you're gawking at my forsythia, said Mrs. Willens. Would you like some to take home? What they had been gawking at was not the forsythia, but the whole scene. The house looking just as usual, the sign by the office door, the curtains letting light in. Nothing hollow or ominous, nothing that said that Mr. Willens was not inside and that his car was not in the garage behind his office, but in Jutland Pond. And Mrs. Willens out working in her yard, where anybody would expect her to be. Everybody in town said so, the minute the snow was melted. And calling out in her familiar, tobacco-roughened voice, abrupt and challenging, but not unfriendly, a voice identifiable half a block away or coming from the back of any store. Wait, she said. Wait now, I'll get you some. She began smartly, selectively snapping off the bright yellow branches, and when she had all she wanted, she came towards them behind a screen of flowers. Here you are, she said. Take these home to your mother's. It's always good to see the forsythia. It's the very first thing in the spring. She was dividing the branches among them. Like all Gaul, she said, all Gaul is divided into three parts. You must know about that if you take Latin. We aren't in high school yet, said Jimmy, whose life at home had readied him better than the others for talking to ladies. Aren't you, she said. Well, you've got all sorts of things to look forward to. Tell your mothers to put them in lukewarm water. Oh, I'm sure they already know that. I've given you branches that aren't all the way out yet, so they should last and last. They said thank you. Jimmy first, and the others picking it up from him. They walked toward downtown with their arms loaded. They had no intention of turning back and taking the flowers home, and they counted on her not having any good idea of where their homes were. Half a block on, they sneaked looks back to see if she was watching. She wasn't. The big house near the sidewalk blocked the view in any case. The Forsythia gave them something to think about. The embarrassment of carrying it, the problem of getting rid of it. Otherwise, they would have to think about Mr. Willens and Mrs. Willens. How she could be busy in her yard, and he could be drowned in his car. Did she know where he was, or did she not? It seemed that she couldn't. Did she even know that he was gone? 
She had acted as if there was nothing wrong, nothing at all, and when they were standing in front of her, this had seemed to be the truth. What they knew, what they had seen, seemed actually to be pushed back, to be defeated by her not knowing it. Two girls on bicycles came wheeling around the corner. One was Bud's sister, Doris. At once, these girls began to hoot and yell. Oh, look at the flowers, they shouted. Where's the wedding? Look at the beautiful bridesmaids. Bud yelled back the worst thing he could think of. You got blood all over your arse. Of course, she didn't, but there had been an occasion when this had really been so. She had come from home from school with blood on her skirt. Everybody had seen it, and it would never be forgotten. He was sure she would tell on him at home, but she never did. Her shame about that other time was so great that she could not refer to it, even to get him in trouble. They realized then that they had to dump the flowers at once, so they simply threw the branches under a parked car. They brushed a few stray petals off their clothes as they turned onto the square. Saturdays were still important then. They brought the country people into town. Cars were already parked around the square and on the side streets. Big country boys and girls and smaller children from the town and the country were heading for the movie matinee. It was necessary to pass Honaker's in the first block, and there, in full view in one of the windows, Jimmy saw his mother. Back at work already, she was putting the hat straight on a female dummy, adjusting the veil, then fiddling with the shoulders of the dress. She was a short woman, and she had to stand on tiptoe to do this properly. She had taken off her shoes to walk on the window carpet. You could see the rosy, plump cushions of her heels through her stockings, and when she stretched, you saw the back of her knee through the slit in her skirt. Above that was a wide but shapely behind, and the line of her panties or girdle. Jimmy could hear in his mind the little grunts she would be making. Also, he could smell the stockings that she sometimes took off as soon as she got home, to save them from runs. Stockings and underwear, even clean female underwear, had a faint, private smell that was both appealing and disgusting. He hoped two things. That the others hadn't noticed her. They had, but the idea of a mother dressed up every day and out in the public world of town was so strange to them that they couldn't comment, could only dismiss it. And that she would not, please not, turn around and spot him. She was capable, if she did that, of rapping on the glass and mouthing hello. At work, she lost the hushed discretion, the studied gentleness of home. Her obligingness turned from meek to pert. He used to be delighted by this other side of her, this friskiness, just as he was by Honecker's, with its extensive counters of glass and varnished wood, its big mirrors at the top of the staircase, in which he could see himself climbing up to ladies' wear on the second floor. Here's my young mischief, his mother would say, and sometimes slip him a dime. He could never stay more than a minute. Mr. or Mrs. Honecker might be watching. Young mischief. Words that were once as pleasant to hear as the tinkle of dimes and nickels had now turned slyly shaming. They were safely passed. In the next block they had to pass the Duke of Cumberland, but Cece had no worries. If his father had not come home at dinner time, it meant he would be in there for hours yet. But the word Cumberland always fell across his mind heavily. From the days when he hadn't even known what it meant, he got a sense of sorrowful plummeting. A weight hitting dark water, far down. Between the Cumberland and the town hall was an unpaved alley, and at the back of the town hall was the police office. They turned into this alley, and soon a lot of new noise reached them, opposing the street noise. 
It was not from the Cumberland. The noise in there was all muffled up, the beer parlor having only small, high windows, like a public toilet. It was coming from the police office. The door to that office was open on account of the mild weather, and even out in the alley you could smell the pipe tobacco and cigars. It wasn't just the policeman who sat in there, especially on Saturday afternoons, with the stove going in winter and the fan in summer, and the door open to let in the pleasant air on an in-between day, like today. Colonel Box would be there. In fact, they could already hear the wheeze he made, the long, drawn-out after-effects of his asthmatic laughter. He was a relative of Jimmy's, but there was a coolness in the family, because he did not approve of Jimmy's father's marriage. He spoke to Jimmy when he recognized him in a surprised, ironic tone of voice. If he ever offers you a quarter or anything, you say you don't need it, Jimmy's mother had told him. But Colonel Box had never made such an offer. Also, Mr. Pollock would be there, who had retired from the drugstore, and Fergus Solly, who was not a half-wit but looked like one, because he had been gassed in the First World War. All day these men and others played cards, smoked, told stories, and drank coffee at the town's expense, as Bud's father said. Anybody wanting to make a complaint or a report had to do it within sight of them, and probably within earshot. Run the gauntlet. They came almost to a stop outside the open door. Nobody had noticed them. Colonel Box said, I'm not dead yet, repeating the final line of some story. They began to walk past slowly with their heads down, kicking at the gravel. Round the corner of the building, they picked up speed. By the entry to the men's public toilet, there was a recent streak of lumpy vomit on the wall and a couple of empty bottles on the gravel. They had to walk between the refuse bins and the high, watchful windows of the town's clerk's office, and then they were off the gravel, back on the square. I got money, Cece said. This matter-of-fact announcement brought them all relief. Cece jingled change in his pocket. It was the money his mother had given him after he washed up the dishes when he went into the front bedroom to tell her he was going out. Help yourself to fifty cents off the dresser, she had said. Sometimes she had money, though he never saw his father give her any. And whenever she said, help yourself, or gave him a few coins, Cece understood that she was ashamed of their life, ashamed for him and in front of him, and these were the times when he hated the sight of her, though he was glad of the money especially if she said that he was a good boy and he was not to think she wasn't grateful for all he did. They took the street that led down to the harbor. At the side of Paquette's service station, there was a booth from which Mrs. Paquette sold hot dogs, ice cream, candy, and cigarettes. She had refused to sell them cigarettes even when Jimmy said they were for his Uncle Fred. But she didn't hold it against them that they'd tried. She was a fat, pretty woman, a French-Canadian. They bought some licorice whips, black and red. They meant to buy some ice cream later when they weren't so full from dinner. They went over to where there were two old car seats set up by the fence under a tree that gave shade in summer. They shared out the licorice whips. Captain Turvet was sitting on the other seat. Captain Turvet had been a real captain for many years on the lake boats. Now he had a job as a special constable. He stopped the cars to let the children cross the street in front of the school and kept them from sledding down the side street in winter. He blew his whistle and held up one big hand, which looked like a clown's hand in a white glove. He was still tall and straight and broad-shouldered, though old and white-haired. Cars would do what he said, and children too. 
At night, he went around checking the doors of all the stores to see that they were locked and to make sure that there was nobody inside committing a burglary. During the day, he often slept in public. When the weather was bad, he slept in the library, and when it was good, he chose some seat out of doors. He didn't spend much time in the police office, probably because he was too deaf to follow the conversation without his hearing aid in, and like many deaf people, he hated his hearing aid. And he was used to being solitary, surely, staring out over the bow of the lake boats. His eyes were closed and his head tilted back so that he could get the sun in his face. When they went over to talk to him, and the decision to do this was made without any consultation, beyond one resigned and dubious look, they had to wake him from his doze. His face took a moment to register, where and when and who. Then he took a large old-fashioned watch out of his pocket, as if he counted on children always wanting to be told the time. But they went on talking to him, with their expressions agitated and slightly shamed. They were saying, Mr. Willens is out in Jutland Pond, and we seen the car, and drowned. He had to hold up his hand and make shushing motions while the other hand went rooting around in his pants pocket and came up with his hearing aid. He nodded his head seriously, encouragingly, as if to say, patience, patience, while he got the device settled in his ear. Then both hands up, be still, be still, while he was testing. Finally, another nod of a brisker sort, and in a stern voice, but making a joke to some extent of his sternness, he said, Proceed. Cece, who was the quietest of the three, as Jimmy was the politest and Bud the mouthiest, was the one who turned everything around. Your fly's undone, he said. Then they all whooped and ran away. Their elation did not vanish right away, but it was not something that could be shared or spoken about. They had to pull apart. Cece went home to work on his hideaway. The cardboard floor, which had been frozen through the winter, was sodden now and needed to be replaced. Jimmy climbed into the loft of the garage, where he had recently discovered a box of old Doc Savage magazines that had once belonged to his Uncle Fred. Bud went home and found nobody there but his mother, who was waxing the dining room floor. He looked at comic books for an hour or so, and then he told her. He believed that his mother had no experience or authority outside their house, and that she would not make up her mind about what to do until she had phoned his father. To his surprise, she immediately phoned the police. Then she phoned his father, and somebody went to round up Cece and Jimmy. A police car drove into Jutland from the township road, and all was confirmed. A policeman and the Anglican minister went to see Mrs. Willens. I didn't want to bother you, Mrs. Willens was reported to have said. I was going to give him till dark. She told them that Mr. Willens had driven out to the country yesterday afternoon to take some drops to an old blind man. Sometimes he got held up, she said. He visited people, or the car got stuck. Was he downhearted or anything like that? The policeman asked her. Oh, surely not, the minister said. He was the bulwark of the choir. The word was not in his vocabulary, said Mrs. Willens. Something was made of the boys sitting down and eating their dinners and never saying a word, and then buying a bunch of licorice whips. A new nickname, Dead Man was found and settled on each of them. Jimmy and Bud bore it till they left town, and Cece, who married young and went to work in the elevator, saw it passed on to his two sons. By that time, nobody thought of what it referred to. The insult to Captain Turvitt remained a secret.
Each of them expected some reminder, some lofty look of injury or judgment, the next time they had to pass under his uplifted arm, crossing the street to the school. But he held up his gloved hand, his noble and clownish white hand, with his usual benevolent composure. He gave consent. Proceed. There we go, Alice Monroe. And we'll be back with more in a couple of days. Were you worried about this one? Did you feel like there's a body and you didn't know what was happening? Why wasn't the story telling you more about it? Well, why weren't the boys saying more about it? Isn't that a little frustrating too? Don't worry, the story's not over. We've hurled the stone into the pond and it sank to the bottom and now we'll watch the ripples as they edge their way to the shore. We're not through throwing stones, and we're not through with visits to the water, and we're not through plumbing the depths. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.